0: Hello, everybody. I'm Al Kamuf, the co-host of Off The Record. I'm super excited to uh, be joined today by two awesome gentlemen uh, on our show. Uh, We had a hard time coordinating uh, schedules around us, but we made it work. And here we are today. Uh, This episode specifically is quite unique because we have a founder and a VC at the same time. So we'll cover company exits from both perspectives. Uh, I'll first start off introducing Mark who was an early employee of Apple uh, with young Steve Jobs uh, back in the day and previously head of innovation at Redbox. Uh, He is a serial entrepreneur who's been creating and investing in tech startups since 1986. Uh, Mark co-founded four companies to date and is the managing director of Math Venture Partners currently. The other guest speaker that we have is Mert Hilmi Isiri, an author and entrepreneur from Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, in 2011, he co-founded SwipeSense, a healthcare technology platform, raised $24 million along the process, implemented its solution in over 100 hospitals and health systems, and got acquired by SC Johnson. He also co-founded Design for America, uh, using design thinking for social impact, which won the National Design Award in 2018. So both Mark and Mert are here to help as many founders as they can, and they even co-wrote a book called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy, which you can find on Amazon, and we will link it in the show notes once you have listened to this episode. So Mark, Mert, amazing to have you on our show. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Oh,
1: Ron, I was so excited to have this conversation, really looking forward to it.
0: Awesome. So the first question I have is like, what was your experience like writing a book? Uh, exit together. Exit right. It together. sucks.
2: Okay. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Mark, go ahead. I'll let you, I'll let you go first. <laughs> well, there's some truth to that. I mean, the,
1: so it's multiple joys and a little bit of torture. So the the, the joy for me was. I got to spend a couple years on a project, not only with Mert, uh, our editor was my oldest daughter, Emily. And so I got to spend two years really thinking deeply and researching and working in a focused way on a particular topic with two people I love. And so that was a joy. It was a joy to do the primary research. We interviewed dozens of CEOs and we got great stories and we interviewed uh, m a attorneys and bankers and we talked to the heads of corp dev at most of the big tech companies the apples and facebook's and microsoft's of the world and amazon and and we asked some great questions and so the the learning was really fun the writing <laughs> yeah, well you know it was actually really, for me at least, it was really helpful to have a partner in the writing just for the discipline of holding ourselves accountable just to get it done. Because I don't know about Mert, I don't know about you, but I, I am not a writer, um, although I think the writing came out well, but uh, that part wasn't easy.
2: I got to say, like right up front, when we started this project, I mean Mark has decades of experience. So I was like this is going to be great. I you know I have a couple of lessons learned myself I just went through an exit that had lots of nooks and crannies in it that I you know figured like there were lots of moments of wisdom and I was like let's capture that. That's going to be so helpful for other founders, other large companies that are acquiring companies. So I was really excited about sort of like a documenting exercise. I gotta say, I was humbled. You know, we met so many wonderful people who've spent, you know, their entire lives thinking about how to get this thing right. So for us to sort of like, you know, take off our, hey, we got this hat off and sort of like, holy crap, there's a lot of there's a lot more in here than we realized, um, was a, a profoundly humbling moment for me. And sort of capturing those sort of like wonderful insights for those those nuggets of like, man, it's the the story that people tell, you know you know, hush-hush to the, you know, ear-to-ear. Ear. Like This isn't stuff that you're going to read on a, on a blog post somewhere. It was just profoundly enriching. But, you know, at the same time, I echo Mark. Like, I'm a non-native English speaker. I was born and raised in Istanbul. I'm a boy from Turkey. You know, like, I didn't know how to speak English well enough to write, you know? So just torturously going through, writing something, trying to get something shorter, trying to find these acronyms was very, very difficult. But, you know, we were at home. We got the, We had the pandemic, so we had some time on our hands. So, you know, it, it came out good. Awesome. And,
1: and I would tell you, too, that the joy, like now that we're on the other side of it, we wrote it to get we wrote this book to give back to help entrepreneurs. And every day, Mert and I, we both get phone calls from CEOs, from entrepreneurs who've read the book and said, oh, my God, this really made a difference. I learned something that was material to help. Like that's that's why we wrote the book.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so I'm going to say a, a quote from your book and then I'll ask a question. So the quote is without decades of experience in merges and acquisition, founders don't have the tools they need to get the best results for themselves, their teams, or the new parent company. And I, you know, just, just to understand that you're talking about the exit, right? When, when you, when you mentioned that quote, so what, what would you, what would you say is broken in the process?
2: Well, look. First of all, it's not a level playing field. For, let, let's just come out and like acknowledge that. As a founder, if you are great, and I'm saying like, you, you know, you're one of the you know count in the number of hands kind of like level of caliber. How many companies have you sold in your in your career? Ten. Like that. That would be like if there were Olympics of M and A. You you're getting gold in, in that, with that kind of a number. People buy ten companies per quarter per year. You know, like the, the people that you're doing this with have been doing the song and dance for a lot longer than you have. So as a founder, first of all, you're already set back. You know, you, you just the, the people are that you're playing this game with have a lot more experience than you do. And that's not just from a negotiation standpoint. It's also about knowing what you're getting into. You know, it's not like raising money. It's not like sort of like being in a growth sort of environment in, in your startup. You are now are part of the, the biggest B2B sale of your life which has implementation, integration, alignment of incentives, a lot more stakeholders than you're used to. I mean, you might be super experienced dealing with a senior executive team or your board or maybe your shareholders. You are not equipped to deal with a giant company and their competing priorities and how you navigate them as, as a small company that's trying to grow. So I, as a founder, I mean, just putting myself in the shoes of you know, my, my fellow my founders, it's not easy. And, you know, I just had this little personal experience myself. Mark has seen this from a venture standpoint dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So, Mark, I'd love to hear your take on this as well.
1: So, look, when we started to write this book, what we realized is that there's very little out there about mergers and acquisitions and best practices. And we realized because, one, um, it's confidential. So there's confidentiality agreements and nobody's supposed to talk about it. Or two, if it's a good outcome, uh, entrepreneurs don't want to brag or they don't want it out there. Or if it's a bad outcome, you know, maybe they're embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. And so this, all of this wisdom that we started to collect, we realized was that most entrepreneurs didn't have access to it or if they did, it was just kind of random. And so we wanted to be able to build, to create the opportunity for entrepreneurs. We were talking about leveling the playing field to give them access to best practices and all the wisdom that we could find.
0: Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's great. I mean, I've always had conversations with people on on even this show off the record where people are supposed to share, you know, information about their deals and like, stuff like that, but like still people, you know, are still hesitant because it's like public people would think poorly or whatever of them. So I really appreciate that, um, rationale for why you wrote the book. And now, so this, my next question I think is going to be for the both of you, but maybe I'll start with Mert first is it's my understanding that, uh, Mert came to math ventures, uh, you know, multiple times <laughs> from what I know, it's three times, uh, to get investment and, uh, it, it never happened. Um, uh, and so maybe you could kind of tell me a little bit about that Martin, in terms of like why once, why twice, why third times, and why why it never happened.
2: You know, first of all, I think that says more about uh, math than it says about me in a very very positive way. And you know, both Mark, Troy, and Dana, the the team we have at Matt Math, you know, they're stewards of the ecosystem. You know, I, I should say I pitched them three times, and the answer wasn't no. The answer was not now. And every time math you know, turns down an investment opportunity, which by the way, we do more often than not, and I'm using we for a reason, which we'll get to in a, in, a, in, a, in a bit, but it's always with the spirit of, here's why we couldn't get there. We love whatever you're building and we are champions. We're in your corner, regardless whether you're selling chewing gum or building the next search engine that's going to compete with Google, either way. We want to see you win. So every no is stapled with specific reasons why we said no and what would change our mind. So every time I would pitch, and I, boy, I so desperately wanted math to be on my cap table. I have so much regard for, for Troy, Mark, Dana, like I, I wanted to be in the arena with, with, with this team. And the answer was, and not now. Now, what, what did happen was I would take in the feedback and I would, you know, faithfully execute on, okay, I, that that is my roadmap for the next six months, for the next 12 months. I'm going to offline build a relationship that's outside of the fundraising cycle. This isn't just something I want to do during during funding. I actually want to learn from these people. So what ended up happening was math became my most value-add investor that wasn't an investor. It's it's kind of a bizarre thing where I kind of got more value out of them without the investment because I could just be straight with them. I could just say, hey, I'm dealing with this problem. Like, How would you go about solving this? And You know, the team has such a depth of knowledge and particularly what we were trying to do at at, at Swipe Sense. I think what I got an outsized advantage of was there's always the song and dance. If you're the founder and you have your investors and your board, you kind of have to constantly tell a story. I hate that I did this. I wish I had more confidence and I wish I had, you know, more uh, sort of wisdom to just be real with my investors all the time. But I couldn't. This is just, again, I'm just being real here. Um, I was always like, oh, things are great. Growth is imminent. Everything is amazing. You know, like, I just felt like I was sort of like doing this song and dance. But because math wasn't an investor, I could just be on the phone and say, hey, shit's on fire. Uh, what do I, what do, I do? How do? How do I get out of this? They were that phone call for me that I could just be real with. Um, and, you know, for what it's worth, it was just incredibly helpful. It was incredibly, incredibly enriching uh, to be on the receiving end this as a founder because I believe I became a better founder because of this. So, you know, I... I pitched three times and I got rejected three times, but I got rejected a whole lot more than that uh, as a founder as well. And I think everybody in the audience listening to this can empathize with that where if you're fundraising or if you're selling or if you're recruiting, get yeah, ready to said no to. I mean, this, this job is mostly about how you handle rejection. It's not about everybody saying yes and, and life is amazing. You're going to get said no a lot of times.
1: So let, let me offer a different, a different perspective. So when Mert came and pitched, it wasn't appropriate. It wasn't for our particular investment thesis, but we, we love Mert and we decided we're going to, like, I decided I was going to help and try like, we became not only advisors, we became friends and, you know, we have multiple types of capital. We have not only financial capital, but we have intellectual capital. We have social capital. And most entrepreneurs, what they fail to understand is when they pitch a VC and 99% of the time we say no, they view it as a transaction. They view it as a moment in time. All right, that rat bastard VC, he didn't understand. Okay, fine, I'm gonna to go to the next one. But that's not what Merck did. That's not what we did. What we did is we invested in a relationship together. And you know, from my vantage point, Maybe this when, a, when an entrepreneur comes and pitches us, you know, maybe this it's not appropriate now, but it might be appropriate six months six months from now. They might pivot, or this idea is bad, but their next company is going to be the real winner. And what I want to do is I want to build and nurture a relationship, and I want to help. Like we start from a position of wanting to help, and we don't help everybody. We, we help people that we like and that you know that we want to build relationships with. But that's how we start the process. And, you know, Mert, you sort of hinted. So today, after selling the company, Mert, what are you doing today?
2: I'm part of Math Venture Partners as an entrepreneur resident. So if I couldn't get through the front door, I'll get through the chimney. Uh, you know, I got the investment <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> right,
1: right. So like relationships matter and, and think of it not as a short term moment in time, but think about it. Across years and decades.
0: Yeah, and um, I wanted to ask uh, previously when we spoke, and I thought it was really cool. Um, I think it was Mert. You mentioned this about something called the Fair acronym. It's like four things to consider when selling. Can you can you unpack that for me? Because I I found it to be really, really awesome.
2: If you're going to take away one thing from Exit Right. Um, is this framework that we have created. And we want to give a quick shout out to Gary Johnson who really helped us develop this. Um, He ran M&A at Apple, Facebook, Pinterest. Like again, if there's a Mount Rushmore, Gary's going in there. He's he's just an incredible thinker when it comes to how to get this thing right uh, when companies are getting acquired. Not just from a monetary ROI standpoint, but philosophically. How do we create great homes? How do we create great value for both of the companies and every stakeholder involved? So we came up with this framework called FAIR, which are the four elements of what makes acquisitions work. And it's really these four things that individually matter. And if you check off all these boxes, turns out you're going to get paid the most for your company as well. And more importantly, you're going to find happiness. You're going to find purpose. and You're going to find impact in in what you're trying to accomplish. So the F stands for fit, uh, which which is really cultural fit between two companies. Can you get along? Like, Do you see the world the same way? Do you share values? Are you sort of a fast-moving tech company compared to a slow-moving old, you know, like chemical company, for example. Like, do you make decisions similarly? These things really matter, and over a long period of time can cause real traffic jams if you don't have sort of an immediate start. uh, You know, a great example of this is Zappos and Amazon. Instant fit almost so like you could you could take the Amazon culture and apply it to Zappos, which would be more or less the same. A very bad example would be, you know, Time Warner and AOL, which was a catastrophic disaster. That's fit. Alignment is are you aligned internally with your stakeholders, with your board, your executive team, your shareholders? And also is the acquiring team aligned? You know, is the CFO looking at the world similarly with the with the head of product? This matters a lot in terms of not just where the companies are here right now, but where the companies are going. You know, this, Without this alignment, there's gonna be so much friction and tension and inevitable problems that not only occur during the M&A process, but really afterwards. Because again, we're building for something long-term in here. Now, the third element is integration. How are these companies getting together? You know, How are the sales teams working together? How are the products integrated? How does how is the technology really complement each other? And what we're going for here is two plus two equals 200. You know, we want to have such an amazing way these companies come together with an eye towards more value for our customers. This is sort of like the key thing that really like keeps the the North Star in as we're putting together the, the integration plan. And so often this plan is left for after the deal is done. Oh, we'll figure out how that happens once the docs are signed it's a huge, huge, huge blunder. It has to be part of the very rationale, which is the final element, of how these companies come together. And that, the final point is sort of, you know, why does this matter? Can I explain to my grandmother why these two companies are now joining forces? And the rationale shouldn't be articulated just as a number on a spreadsheet. It should be articulated with a deep focus on our customers. You know, ultimately, how do we deliver more value for our hopefully mutual customers that are growing over time. So if you focus on each of those elements, fit, alignment, integration, and rationale, you're gonna find a great home. And the byproduct is going to be, hey, as a founder, you'll be wealthy, your investors are gonna be happy, like that's awesome, that's a fantastic thing. But, you know, a transaction, a sale, isn't a short-term, I give you something, you give me something. It's the beginning of a a long-term relationship. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts?
1: So, yes, and it, it's, it's also how you create and ensure value. So let's take the rationale, for example. Most uh, bid, corp dev leaders, most CFOs, when they're evaluating a company to purchase, how do you do it? It's always expressed as a multiple of some sort of revenue number. It could be multiple of top-line revenue. It could be a multiple of EBITDA. But when you're looking at a financial number, you're looking backwards. You're looking at what we accomplished last year. So getting a multiple of a financial number is not a rationale for why you should do the deal. So I, a rationale might be if you took your product and you plug it into the larger company's Salesforce or had access to their customer base? What kind of revenue could you drive in the future? Or if your product was so strategically aligned that it improved the retention rate of the larger company's core product, what's that worth to the larger company? Right? Building a rationale together about why. Merck says one plus one equals 200. That's also how you drive value. And let me give you another example of integration. So integrations, the ugly stepchild of all, uh, mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. It's always done at the end, but it matters. So let me give you an example. Why some transactions have earnouts for future performance. Those earnouts, oftentimes, uh, in order to to be able to achieve aggressive future performance in the new company, you're going to have to have access to resources. You might have to have the right amount of people, staff, access to sales channels, marketing support, whatever it is. If you don't have post-transaction, you don't have the resources necessary to execute, well, guess what happens? You're not going to make your earnouts. Yeah. And, and and if a larger percentage of your of the deal is structured in the future and we can talk about that as well because there's lots of issues there um, so so this fit this this uh, the 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 fair which is fit alignment integration and rationale this fair framework is incredibly important and meaningful and has financial impact
0: awesome. Um- I want to talk about like how to help companies exit, but before we do, I want to talk about uh, a Rambo moment story that was that happened in your career, Mert. <laughs> I think it was May 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us the story of what happened, and then how you got out of it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it was a it was a life changing moment for me as a as a CEO, and I really think that, you know, we will file the story under lessons learned that I'm grateful for, but I wouldn't want my future children to experience because it's you know deeply traumatic and honestly there's nothing glorifying about it because you know a lot of uh, a lot of growth happens in these moments of crises we had a real fork in the road it was 2018 we had raised a ton of money the company sales were good not great we had about a million in sales but it was growing very very slowly and what's rough was we only had six months of capital in the bank um i actually funny enough i sat down with troy Uh, one of our partners here at at math and I was telling him about you know man I think this is going to be you know we have a lot of potential in here look at my pipeline for the next quarter we just have to hit this one more you know quarter and then we'll be able to keep going and then we'll be able to do a raise you know Troy sat down in front of me and he said Mert if I were in your board right now I would grab your shoulders and shake the shit out of you until you come to your senses what are you doing like you're gambling with the livelihood of your team. And that, you know, that hit me like a bullet in the head because he was right. I was rolling the dice and saying, I hope we hit this number. And what if happens if we don't, I'm, I'm going to have to like lay off my whole company. We're going to have to shut down. I have a responsibility. We, we have a sacred bond in here. It's not the employment agreement. It's that I, we looked at each other in the eyes and people trust me as their leader that I have their back. Am I really, Am I really, really, really making this move without while while disregarding that? So he gave me some bitter truth and you know, the medicine was bitter, but the patient needed it. He said, Mert, you're going to do some layoffs. It's gonna suck. I did it myself and it was this context. I'm happy to give you feedback on like how you do this right. But the first thing you do is you do it now. You don't do it two weeks from running out of money. You still have some time, put together a plan, discuss with your board and then execute. It's really tough. I went back sat down with my co-founder and we put together the plan uh, that essentially reduced our team size from you know 40 people to 20 people it sucked it was, the, the most difficult part for me as i was putting that together was recognizing that these people had done nothing wrong I, I, it's my shortcomings that is that, that is leading down this path so i put together a plan presented to my board it was this very tense board meeting and you know we have you know, people who have millions of dollars invested in the in the company. And here I'm presenting like, hey, nobody prompted this, but here's the plan of what I think needs to happen. In exchange for this, we're going to get more runway. We're going to be able to execute A, B, and C. It was a correct plan. But still, if there's ever an admission of failure, boy, this is it. And the chair of my board looked at the plan and basically said, Mert, this plan is 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 the right thing to do, but there's one person missing. And it's you. You can't be the CEO anymore. And it was like this, you know, life before my eyes kind of a moment, you know, like what do you say? What do you do? I you know, I created this thing. I'm the I'm the person, I'm the CEO. I'm I'm the co-founder, I'm a member of the board. It was like about five seconds or so where I was like, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the room. But in the end I said, no problem. My Resignation letter is attached to this plan. Because ultimately what I knew to be true then, and I still believe today, company performance is CEO performance. Just like how you can't say, well, our marketing is going great, but our sales suck. No, you know, our product is amazing, but our tech sucks. No, 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 these things are together. You can't have one without the other. And I, as the CEO, I'm accountable. we're not hitting our sales numbers, it's not the head of sales. Who hired the head of sales? We're not hitting our product goals. Who, who, who built the roadmap? I, ultimately, it's my signature in the end. So I said, no problem. But with one condition, I should be the one doing the layoffs. It's not really a confidence builder that we hire a new CEO. And you know the first thing they do is lay off you know half the company. It's not a good look. So it's my responsibility. Let me do the layoffs. And afterwards, you want me involved in the search process or not? I'm happy either way. I did the laughs the next day. Very, very difficult. You know, very emotional. And in the end of it, I, you know, had a call with my board chair. He goes, Murt, how are you feeling? I said, Man, I need a drink. This is this was the this was a tough day. And he said, Okay, uh, great. Um, I have a CEO candidate coming in on Monday, and uh, hopefully he hopefully he likes it. I'm like, Man, it's been like less than 24 hours, but like, I guess okay. Like, like, I, you know, I'm I'm eager to meet them. New Canada comes in. We spent about two weeks together. It's just not a great cultural fit. We just. You know, we didn't see eye to eye. I'll spare us the details of you know what happened, but in the end of those two weeks, I essentially said, no, not this guy. It, you know, I'm open to a new CEO. I'm open to resigning and like not being part of this, but it's just not this person. I'm the one who has to stand behind the rest of our team, the rest of our investors, and say this is the person that's going to get out of the soul. And I just don't believe that. And I remember actually having this conversation with Mark. We, uh, I was a guest lecturer in his class, and we walked. We were walking back home from. Northwestern, uh, the Kellogg School of Business. And he, I remember telling him the story, like, man, I'm really struggling. I don't want to come off as the person who was holding on to the throne here, as like, oh, like, I really want to be the CEO or something. So I genuinely believe I, duh, I messed up here. I you know, I don't want to be here. I want to win. Winning is more important than being the CEO. Helping our customers is more important than you know me retaining some title. And Mark gave me this insanely applicable story of how Steve Jobs punched through the iconic 1984 ad way back when, when the entire board of directors were basically saying, hey, this ad sucks, which, by the way, became one of the greatest ads of all time. And if you remember this, sort of like the hammer being thrown into the the screen, the Macintosh ad, like truly iconic Olympic gold medal ad. And the board was like, no way, Steve, you're not doing this. And Steve Jobs basically at that moment said, hey, we're doing it. FYI, that's <laughs> just a direct. And what the reason why the story mattered to me was, you know, CEOs should listen to their boards. You're ultimately accountable to them. But, you know, 5% of the time, you should have a spy. If you don't believe something is right, if you don't believe this is going to serve your customers or your team or or your long-term vision, you should stand up and believe in what you think is true. So the next day, I called our board chair and I said, not this guy. Sorry. bye." Th- th- this is this is black and black and white for me. I'm happy to resign, I'm happy to not be part of this process, but I'm not this person. He said to me on the phone, Mertz, I'll make this very simple for you. We either make the candidate the CEO tomorrow, or we're writing off the investment and you're on your own. And I said, after a little bit of a pause, I said, I don't negotiate with terrorists. I'll send you the resignation papers after we hang up the phone. And he hung up on my face, he just like straight up hung up. And I you know, followed through, I immediately like called my lawyer and said within an hour we had like board resignation papers. Now I didn't know at the time that this is basically suicide as a venture backed company. Because if you're a largest shareholder, the chair of your board tells you that we wrote off the investment, good effing luck raising your next round.
0: Yeah.
2: But here's what it did for us. Now we have 18 people, we're about a year ahead of us and we kind of burned the boats. You know, we are here yeah. in the island. There's no way out but through, and we're going to have to fend for ourselves. And you know what we started to do? We started going to our customers and saying, hey, uh, are, do, are you okay with paying annual? Or do you want to pay up front? You, know, you know, we have costs. Like, we're going to increase our pricing by 20%. Why didn't we do that on day one? You know, why didn't we do that from six years ago? Like, these good habits that we were forced to enact, we just started doing them because we had to and from that moment june 2018 to our you know acquisition in you know march of 2020 we grew by 400% we you know 4x our our revenue with half the people with doing more applications more press i was fully transparent with the team and i remember looking at people in the eye and sort of saying like this is just what went down you have the exact package as our The the team that we parted ways with, if you wanted to, we'll give you three months of severance, we'll pay you for your insurance, whatever it is. We'll make sure you land on your feet. I'll personally make sure you find your new role. But if you're here, there is no going back and we're in it together. That moment of true trust, man, I like that. That that was when we became a real company, and that's what led to our acquisition. And I knew then, when the moment we were acquired, and the moment that uh, afterwards, that this is the team that is cohesive, that we can run through anything that we can in our power. And in process, I think I became a way better CEO.
0: Amazing. That, that Mark, is in what's the, your take on this?
1: Yeah, yeah that's an incredible story. But but I want to add something else. So Mert, you said something in the beginning of this interview you said i wasn't fully comfortable being a young ceo being honest with my board yeah and going through now that we've all heard that story and that journey and now that you're on the other side of it what have you learned about honesty and transparency and accountability and how would you act differently as a ceo today than you did you know before
2: I wanna use two values in here, because I think if you focused on you know, honesty and transparency, look, it's not like I, was, I, I thought I was being dishonest. I was just sort of like painting a rosy picture. I was being too optimistic. Like, it's not like I was hiding our financials. So it's not a matter of transparency. Like, it, so when we focus on those things, I think the mind goes in different places and it's easy for a CEO to go, well, you know, I always share my financials. I have nothing to worry about, whatever. It's not about that. So two values that i want to sort of like pinpoint in here one right is vulnerability yes uh, are you actually being real right not just with your board but with you like when you go to bed at night and you're staring at the ceiling which we all do like are you being real about your be all your own bs like are you drinking the kool-aid and feeling like oh this is great or are you saying like this is just like sewage water that i just fucking drank like what the hell like I, you know I, like, are you being real with your problems? Are you saying, yeah, you know, our head of sales the B B-minus person, but, you know, I'm sure they'll work it out. You know, like, are you saying that? Or are you saying, like, I'm not getting the results. I hired this person. Let's go. We, we need a new person. Like, are you being totally vulnerable? Vulnerability is hard. You know, the, the hardest thing that anyone has ever said in, in their life is, I need help. You know, just being real with your own shortcomings and how you overcome them. So that, the first one is vulnerability. The second value that I want to highlight is empathy oh yeah are you actually like understanding your situation from the vantage point of your board from the story that they have to tell to their partners to their lps like are you actually you know sort of like playing this game not just from your vantage point but from what everyone else is feeling around the table so uh, rather than focusing on you know honesty or transparency which i'm going to keep you know what i was doing back then What i'm going to do differently now is i'm going to be a lot more vulnerable and i sort of like ask for this unwritten agreement of vulnerability with the companies that i work with that i mentor that i invest in but also an expectation of empathy where everybody comes to the table not just me as a ceo but me as the investor too like i want to be you know seeing the problem from your vantage point as well but i just think this whole dynamic of building companies startups Work would work a whole lot better if we all sort of like up the volume on the empathy box a little bit and try to see the story from, from everyone else's perspectives. Those are the things that I'm going to be focused on doing differently in the companies that I invest in or in the companies that I start down the road in my career.
1: And, and let me add a little bit to that. So like, yes, the, the vulnerability is so key. Let me start off before vulnerability, most entrepreneurs think, especially first time entrepreneurs think that a board meeting is reporting, just giving information. I'm going to give financial information. I'm going to give sales numbers. I'm going to give the pipeline. It's reporting. That's not a great use of time. We can read. We can we can get those reports. We can read them ahead of time. The real value of a board meeting is when you have, you know, smart people around the table who are passionate about your business, who can, who have scar tissue we've gone through, we've lived through what you're going through, having deeper, more profound strategic conversations, like what's keeping you up at night? How can we, you know, collectively together, grow market share, fix problems that can't happen unless you're vulnerable and that you're willing to open up. And um, there's also, as a VC, I have we have a role in that too. So let me give you one really quick story, and I know we're kind of running out of time here. Um, I was on a board, one of our portfolio companies, and the CEO was uh, had this big, giant, multi-million dollar uh, accounts receivable coming in, and it was running late and they didn't really talk about it with the board and they were gonna miss a payroll. So what they decided to do is they were able to squeeze it out, squeeze the payroll out, but they didn't pay the payroll tax. And the big AR came in, everything was fine. The next board meeting, the CEO says, oh yeah, by the way, we got into a little bit of a tight squeeze and my solution was I didn't pay the payroll tax. My eyes popped open. I, used, I was the lead investor for uh, and chairman of the board of a payroll company called Sure Payroll. That's where I met my partner, Troy, who was the CEO. I, I happen to know a little bit about payroll and I know <laughs> that the government kind of frowns when you don't pay your payroll tax. And I, I did not handle myself well. I went ballistic. Uh, this was a good learning moment for me on several levels. Um, sure enough, six months go by, the, uh, the CEO gets a little love letter from the IRS. The penalty was $125,000 for just missing one payroll, one uh, payroll tax. Um, the learning moment for me was several. The, the first was why, did, why was there an environment where the CEO didn't feel comfortable telling the board that they were going through an issue? And it wasn't just me, the the CEO didn't tell the entire board, but I like that was a real wake up call for me to have better relationships with my CEOs and to address vulnerability right up front. And the other piece of it too is my reaction. I realized on the back end of that reaction um, that wasn't being particularly supportive of the CEO and it wasn't helpful. Uh, And so, you know, going back to Mert and this journey of empathy, empathy cuts both ways. And uh, as a VC, I'm also always learning and growing. And part of the joy of this book that we wrote was the intellectual journey. We learned so much about the art of how do you maximize your return, the art of M&A. It was really really a, a, a gift.
2: And to put a bow on what Mark shared, you know, one of the value add that a board can have in a venture startup conversation is is having an annual exit talk is to sort of, again, take the the stigma out of this. You know, entrepreneurs don't want to talk about their exits because VCs think that they're going to like not they're not motivated. They just are looking for a payout. No, let's have empathy and vulnerability pre-schedule an annual conversation about, hey, we're gonna have a strategic discussion about how we add most value for our future customers by partnering with a larger company. I'm using the word partnership deliberately in here. This isn't just a sales agreement. An ultimate m is a partnership. It's a B2B partnership. Our, 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 our companies are going to join forces together. So to Mark's point about being vulnerable, being empathetic, what an incredible opportunity to have a strategic discussion versus sort of like a, hey, I'm reporting on my next quarter sales numbers. Much more valuable to say, hey, how do we strategically add more value for our customers? Let's get our heads together. Maybe we can start building up some relationships years ahead of an eventual exit. You know, this isn't to say we're selling the company six months from now. So the the values that we're talking about here are deeply applicable to an MA setting. But it turns out that if you get this right in MA, you're going to do a lot well in other parts of your business, too yeah and the other thing we could go for another hour here
1: but (laughs) but, but another thing too is you know we wrote this book about exits but it turns out that the decisions you make at the beginning of your journey have an outsized impact at the end of your journey so who you give equity to really matters uh how you deal with co-founders who are no longer part of the business um you know the the tax structure, all sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily think about or care about when you're at the start of the journey actually really matter. And so, um, you know, we could have a whole nother conversation about that as well.
0: I just have one final question for you guys before we wrap up. Um, It's about like alignment of interest. We talked about it a bit, and it's a kind of big deal, obviously, for founders and VCs. And, you know, oftentimes it's not there. So what I wanted to ask is, you know, maybe, you know, I could start with you, Mark, I think you mentioned to me before in a conversation that, you know, when a founder gets an offer to be acquired, it might not work for the VC. And like, I want to ask that. And then what are other things that could quote unquote bury a successful exit?
1: Well, different classes of shareholders have different motivations. And it's not only common versus preferred, you know, you could have multiple rounds of preferred shares and some of those preferred shares might have different preferences or different financial incentives. And so it's not always easy. Um, In fact, most of the time it isn't unless it's just a giant home run and everybody's happy. So I'll give you an example. At a venture capital fund, you know, typically we might have 15 slots in a fund. And one of 15 is precious to us. There's an opportunity cost because we're investing in you and not somebody else. And the nature of the business is we wouldn't invest if we didn't think it had the opportunity or potential to return back the fund. So, in the last couple of years, it's changing now, but in the last couple of years, valuations have not been tethered to the underlying economic reality. They've been pretty robust relative to the historic norms. And uh, we saw a couple times in our portfolio, uh, early stage companies with under a million in revenue getting offers for 15, 20, 25 million, which would be life altering to the entrepreneur, it, you know, especially if it's a first time entrepreneur and phenomenal for them. And for us, it was like a one to two X return. And while we don't mind getting our money back, Uh, We wouldn't have made the investment had we known that it was only because remember, we only have 15 slots that took up one slot, we wouldn't have made the investment if we thought it was only going to be a 1x return, or a 2x return. And and so that's an example of where we weren't aligned. Um, But I told I tell the entrepreneurs, look, at the end of the day, if I was your dad, I'd say if somebody's offering you 20x, and you can, and it's life altering for you and you can get the cash out now without all the risk of future risk and future execution, do it. But, you know, it's not great for us. Hey, I apologize. I have actually, I've got the next one I got to run to. Um, Okay.
0: Uh, So so to answer your second
2: half of your question, uh, Aram, uh, your second question was like, how do these deals tank? Like what happens? And the simple answer that I can give you around this is the trust battery has depleted. And look, it really hurts if you're already starting this relationship at 1% and you're like, please give me the, give me me the, give me the iPhone charger going into this. But inevitably every deal will run into challenges. There is going to be challenges because your shareholders want different things. There's going to be challenges because your co-founder doesn't want to move and the acquiring company wants you to move. There's going to be challenges because the acquiring company has this ironclad risk policy around, you know what you have? You have your IP all you know in nicely in a box somewhere, and you don't have that. There's all sorts of problems. These things are complicated, nuanced. There's a lot of lawyers involved, and like it's you know typically when the number of the N of lawyers go up, the problems don't go down. They they go up because people realize, oh, what about this? You know, like the 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 whole thing gets more complicated. How do you overcome these challenges? Is if you trust each other, and if you have built those relationships, this ecosystem of buyers ahead of time. Or you're a known entity you maybe done a couple of deals together you have shared customers their success stories there's a rationale that's built on both companies capabilities there's a lot of trust on the table you can overcome these challenges you can say that hey i know this might not be exactly what we want it to be but i know where it's going because we trust you so what i tend to focus on is rather than being sort of tactically focused on you know boy you got to make sure your data room is intact it should be intact like that's great but there's really nothing that replaces a trusted relationship that's built over a long period of time not just with your vcs but with your acquirers you know paul graham wrote the seminal essay and shout out to paul graham he's like a one of the most brilliant people in, in startup uh, ever you know he's just he's just a great great uh, thinker um one of the co-founders of yc you know he wrote this post that i think really hurt the ecosystem as a whole that said never talk to MA. you know your startups should just be focused on building and, and growing and like mna is just for for losers don't talk, don't talk to MA people now, those aren't his exact words, but the spirit in which what he wrote was, you know, talking to MA is a distraction. And to a certain extent, he's right. Obviously, you shouldn't be spending all your time thinking about M&A. But to have zero focus and just say, I am just going to build a home, right? It really does a disservice to most founders, which is, look, we're not everybody's building the next Facebook. And it's also a fantastic outcome if you have a $50 million, $100 million outcome. If you build these relationships over time, it really pays back in dividends. And it's also you know, not that counterintuitive because we say this all the time as investors, build a relationship with the VCs in your community and what have you. Like These things happen over a long period of time. And we expect that we're totally fine with founders spending you know, three months, six months, once every 18 months to you know, fundraise for their company. And yet we frown upon them spending a week on building these relationships per year we think it can go otherwise. So the key thing here is to build up trust before these problems arise. So ultimately, when they do, you have currency to spend to get over those challenges.
0: No, it's a, it's a great parting message uh, that you just shared. Thank you so much, uh, Mert. This <laughs> was, was awesome to have you here with me today. I, I love your enthusiasm, your energy. It's just like Radiating. (laughs) And I I loved having Mark on as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, Super enlightening for me, and I'm sure to all the listeners. And uh, yeah, everybody tuning in, thank you. Thank you for giving us your time.